0: I'm Jeannie Allen, and this is Reality Check. Reality Check is produced by National Review and is one of more than a dozen podcasts offered on the National Review online website. If you'd like a free subscription to the podcast so you never miss a program, please sign up at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. My guest in this edition of Reality Check is Carl Schramm, an economist and a professor and so much more. He actually spent his professional life learning how entrepreneurs succeed. Carl spent a decade as president and CEO of the Kauffman Foundation and made it the first grant-making foundation to actually own and operate its own charter school. His experience tells him that the first thing you are taught in business school, how to write a business plan, just doesn't have any real value. In fact, his latest book entitled Burn the Business Plan, published in mid-January, is getting rave reviews and is already a top seller. Carl, as you know, I have a soft spot in my heart for entrepreneurship and education. Always have. Um, Most recently, I earned my master's degree in it uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. But as I've told you before and have had from personal experience, it's a hard uphill battle to persuade people in the education reform world, even in the foundation world, that there's a place for entrepreneurship and the innovation that comes with it. Do you see it that way? And if so, why is the case? And let me just also just say thanks so much for joining me.
1: Oh, I'm happy to be with you, and thanks for having me. Yes, I see it uh, much that same way in terms of how difficult it is, you know, to propagate uh, reform um, in a a kind of a non planned environment. Um, I think we we live in a period that really began a long time ago when... um, you know, we thought we could make government uh, sort of a science, and planning became the metier, the, the mechanism of making government a science, and that's where, of course, experts took over. And it began to sort of ring out the creativity that is native to Americans, and particularly uh, Americans. You know, it's native to all people, but particularly Americans because of the freedom that is the basis of what our economy is about and our society. It really explains. Uh, the enormous growth in American uh, history because we had freedom and human creativity could could operate inside a free environment. So specifically to the point of uh, foundations and uh, people who are interested in educational reform, um, you know, foundations are a major funder, historically have been and should be, of educational reform mm-hmm. movements. I'm very disappointed with how how little attention they give this, and I think a lot of that is, related to foundations as being part of the establishment. And, you know, educational reform is often counter-establishment. But the notion that foundations have to treat every proposal as if it's a new business plan. And unfortunately, Jeannie, the notion of venture foundations or venture investing from foundations, really it's the venture capital model, forces them to think about this in terms of you know, written, formal business plans for proposals. Um, And I I think it's really confining to, um, you know, creative thinking about even how foundations should be spending their money.
0: Well, and you talk a lot about consumers and the customer in your book. At one point in time um, in the section called planning, then pivoting, then pivoting, then pivoting. I love that. You talk about Michael Levin, and uh, you quote him, uh, as saying making a successful company requires an intimate tango with customers, not a tight grip on a business plan and and then you go on to talk about your own journey, which i 'd love uh, our listeners to hear but when i when that when I heard that, the parallel again to to just kind of all of education from pre k through college really struck me that we 're in the midst of constantly trying to stick to a plan, and if you stick to a plan. Your argument is you forget what the customer's all about.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, um, in the book, I actually mention the Apple Classroom of Tomorrow, and I'm a huge admirer of what Apple's done with education in the sense that, um, you know, they were trying to use the revolution of computers as a way to help kids grow. Uh, And initially, they did it in the confines of traditional education, but after a while, To their great credit, they studied the effectiveness of, you know, computers in classrooms and didn't find kids getting all that much smarter. And eventually they abandoned it, redeveloped it um, around this notion of, you know, big ideas, solve a big idea by yourself. So it was really a a blooming of creativity and trusting students, you know, to uh, basically oversee their own education, which, of course, you know should be the absolute goal of all education. The smartest people are people who basically have been lifelong learners and teaching things. And there's a really important thing here that connects this to innovation and to entrepreneurship. You know, we're getting more and more formulaic about innovation. in fact, some people argue we're getting less and less innovative as a result. And the point I keep trying to make is that, you know, all innovation comes down to synthesis. It's one person or a group of people being able to synthesize lots of different information and see something new.
0: Mm The
1: real trick here is, you know, if we don't have people well-educated and broadly educated and deeply educated, they can't synthesize. And that's one of the difficulties, I think, that goes on uh, and that you're devoted to in terms of educational reform. You know, we've got to get substance back into what the educational event is.
0: This is so true, and and you take a you take a, a kind of a swipe at traditional colleges, right? On this on this score, in terms of not really growing entrepreneurs, can you talk a little bit about how you how you came upon that conclusion?
1: Yeah, I do take a swipe at colleges. I think the notion that they're teaching entrepreneurship is actually quite scandalous. Um, there's no core of anything. It's not a discipline. There's no canon. What can they teach? And this is an incidental matter, you know, about the 6,000 people who teach entrepreneurship, probably 5,000 never started a business or worked in a startup. So the question I always ask is, you know, if you want to learn to be a surgeon, would you go study with somebody who's never been in an operating room? The answer is pretty clear. But the real issue is colleges teach entrepreneurship, and it's sort of like other things they teach to be able to major in diversity, for example, right? Well, there's no canon of knowledge there. And to draw this out differently, people have said, you know, you've attacked business school training, uh, which I have. And, you know, every time you do this, the difficulty, of course, is if, if you're going to make a critique, you have to have something to erect in its, in its um, place in case you, you ever won your critique, right? right? And I've been asked a million times, so if business is shut, if business school is shut, how would you prepare kids for a career in business? And my answer is simple. You'd, you'd make them study history because whether it's art history, music history, political history, business history, um, you know, what what a student is learning is the unfolding of events, why specific decisions were critical to the unfolding of events thereafter, and they get a sense of how things move through time. And uh, if you think about that, you know, writing a business plan is almost antithetical to that. It's a snapshot in time, and it's kind of like a forecast of what will happen. But oftentimes, they really don't uh, look to history about the uh, area of the business, uh, area of the market they're working in, or the area of the innovations they 're trying to uh, birth
0: and I love that that you 'd make them study history because it 's the unfolding of events. I mean, in any sector, in order to be successful in what you 're trying to do, you need to know where it came from as opposed to mm-hmm. starting at this uh, at this one point in time, and it, you know it, it makes me think about today 's current debate, um, not even debate i mean there are, are already proposals on the hill it 's in the president trump's budget. Uh, this and he mentioned it in the State of the Union, vocational education. You know, I, I am deeply concerned. I mean, on one hand, I'm very devoted and, and passionate about the fact that we have to make sure that, you know, we have these workers who don't have skills and skills don't have workers, and we have to be providing the foundational training that allows people to get the kind of advanced skills they need to be in companies and stuff today, right? At the same time, the old shop class or the old factory model of vocational education – undermines anyone's ability to get this kind of history and and so there's there's a need for this foundational education no matter what career you're going to we should be talking about pathways not one kind of education but how do you square this today in your opinion given all you've seen this um this new obsession with just vocational and technical education versus college college shouldn't it be all part of the same shouldn't we just want and expect a foundation of education, so that you can do anything you want
1: well, that's ideally exactly where we've got to be heading now. My reading of uh President Trump was he was referencing an old form like when I was a kid uh there was vocational school, and it was a trade school, and it was really important. But I think what you know probably motivates him, and I bet he hasn't analyzed it clearly, but I think it's on the wind and it's, it's there's a drift of uh, uh, perception in this direction, and I'm sure you deal with it all the time, and that is the failure of colleges to actually equip students to do much or, alternatively, trying to teach co- at the college level um, specific tasks and jobs. Mm-hmm. I see it all the time. You know, universities, you you can go to a university now and major in things like managing a sports team, Right. And as someone who grew up with a liberal education, I, I find that actually appalling. Um, again, what do you have to know to manage a sports team? You don't have to know history. You don't have to know English. You never have to be exposed to poetry. These are all the enriching things that permit people to be much more synthetic in time. And, you know, uh, so I think what the tension you're seeing there with the president is, you know, he, he knows that a lot of what goes on in colleges is, is largely useless, that they're pushing more and more to be into, like, vocational things. Yes. I think I count entrepreneurship training, you know, a vocational thing.
0: Right. You know,
1: if you think about it, as I say in my book, uh, you know, reading it at surface level, it sounds like, oh, yeah, you can come to college and learn to be an entrepreneur like you learn to be a dentist. It's an occupation, right? Well, it's not. The fact is, if people even only looked at the statistics, people start businesses on average when they're 39. Right. They've been out of college a long time. If you taught them how to start a business when they were 21, they'd forgotten everything they might have known, and it was all probably false anyway. So, you know, I think that's what this tension is over, vocational training versus collegiate training. You know, in one way, it's good because we've been through an administration, for example, the Obama administration, that indebted millions of kids on the thesis that everybody had to have a college education. Mm Mm-hmm. And as someone who teaches in a college, I can tell you this: a college education isn't for everybody. And I think colleges have contorted themselves to the point where, you know, they can almost teach anything to anybody, whether it's a
0: discipline or not, whether they want it or not. That's a failure. Yeah. And, yep. and 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 the case is that today's college, and you're pointing this out really well. I mean, college has failed so many people. So it's not that we shouldn't give people access. What I like to say is. It should be about providing pathways to higher education, whatever that looks like. And by the way, what makes a four-year residential college superior? Um, my old friend and entrepreneur who I know you know well, Chris Whittle, used to say the difference between high school and college, three months, right? All of a sudden, we expect kids from going to high school to go to college, and you sit there for four years. And we know that um, – not to you know wax nostalgically, but uh, a lot of what students are sitting through, one of the reasons they're not completing, is because they don't find it relevant – so how can you, if you know, if you want to be in history classes, if you want to be in things where you can learn, if you want to become a successful business entrepreneur, but you still want to find your pathway, you have no student agency, you have no role in it because the school is baked. And God forbid you come with some additional credits or you did coding, or maybe you hung around for a year in garage Band and actually learned to compose music, that stuff doesn't matter in a traditional music school.
1: Yep, I think that's exactly right. Um... And the other part of it is I think colleges have lost the interest in inducing students to be creative about what they take and how they think. You know, this is your chance. And I think Chris Whittle's right. It's three months is the difference. But also, he might be wrong in the sense that, you know, colleges used to be where people went to basically step out of life for a while and learn the big stuff. Okay. Mm -hmm. Again, I go to the liberal arts. And I think that is so critical uh, because, you know, if you think about it, um, only about uh, 8% of people by the time they're 40 are working in the area in which they majored in college. (laughs) So the question is, what are we really preparing for? You know, the technology that exists today that we're teaching folks, for example, let's just say uh, I like to pick on this, you know, getting a master's degree in diversity, right? Right. What does that mean?
0: Right.
1: The first of all, the idea didn't even exist ten years ago. Second, when we say diversity, that means basically, it, you know, it's the confines of race and gender. It's certainly well, not diversity. They, they have masters. They have masters in
0: race and gender too. <laughs> <That's> yeah, what?
1: <laughs> and, and what do those jobs prepare people for? Um, you know, they're they're all prepared to have people work in a regulated environment where corporations and government have to keep score on how many people are working, uh, excuse me, how many people work in their organizations by color and gender and so forth. It's, it's anti-American in many regards. But more importantly, those jobs are not content jobs in the sense that they're enriching to the people who even do them.
0: That's right. I'm talking to Carl Schram. if you're just joining us. This is Jeannie Allen, and this is Reality Check. Carl's a university professor at Syracuse, has taught at Johns Hopkins, MIT, and UC Davis. For 10 years, he was president of the Ewan Marion Kaufman Foundation in Kansas City, which is the world's leading institution supporting entrepreneurship. And he's written a fabulous book published by Simon & Schuster called Burn the Business Plan. Okay, so you, we have decided now that we're not doing this right in higher education. Uh, we're not doing it right in business. We're not spurring enough people to really use the creativity uh, that they could uh, to develop those great ideas. And But there's a great shout-out to Jeff Sandifer, who is a successful oil and gas exec, uh, who runs the Acton School of Business. He also, if I'm uh, correct, recently started a K-12 uh, school as well. And you say that Sandifer doesn't invest in his students' companies, of course, but what I love is he gives people money back if they don't succeed as an entrepreneur. Tell me a little bit about why you liked his model.
1: Well, he runs a business school, and if you don't succeed, right, he gives you your money back. He has a lot of other really great things that go on in his business school, that is to say, you know, he 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 evaluates the students every year and lets the students evaluate the professors every year. And a professor who's not getting good evaluations from the student, that is somebody who's conveying information they find valuable, um, they don't get hired. So he's running a, a, a shop that doesn't have tenure. He has to have performance out of all his professors all the time, and part of that performance is measured by what the customers think. Um, and then if... On balance, the students don't think they learned enough uh, to succeed. He gives them their money back. I mean, imagine how this works. There's nothing that even whispers that inside, you know, the uh, system of our public schools or Mm -hmm. our private schools Mm -hmm. or, or our colleges.
0: Fascinating. You know, um, Just to say
1: something, uh, yeah. Jeannie, this—I yeah. this, I think this is really amazing. You know, uh, there, there are now at least five hundred schools that have a master's. Excuse me, that have a, a bachelor's degree program, a major in entrepreneurship. Almost none of them ever poll their graduates to see what happened. Right now, if you don't do that, how can you make a better product?
0: That's exactly right. You know, the program that I was involved in—I actually helped advise on its creation—is. Um a master's in education entrepreneurship at Penn, and it blends Wharton business courses with education courses. And um, the entire thread is on developing a business. And so you ha- you're you taken through, sadly, writing a business plan, but most of it's about financial planning, um, your idea, getting the pitch right. Uh, and it was fascinating because it was business with education, and they're still developing. I mean, for me, having gone back after being out years and having started my own enterprise, I found some things that were really helpful. Um, There are other things that I thought that would be great to know about, but um, I would have just loved to have, uh, roll up my sleeves next to entrepreneurs and investors who could tell me whether or not uh, what I was doing could work and maybe how it could work better. And so I think that practical application um, that's so critical is what you really are espousing here. Let me ask you a question kind of shifting to uh, sort of the core of the education reform movement that I know that you've been incredibly supportive of as well, Carl. I mean, it's probably safe to say that the most entrepreneurial development in public education over the last 25 to 30 years has been the rise of the charter school movement. Okay. And and so the best charter schools are places where that entrepreneurial energy is strongest and yet we're we're finding a shift now we're, we're we're sort of falling back on same old same old as people try to prove and go to scale. What would be your advice for the charter school sector uh that now really wants to try to develop the school in a box so that they can be proven i mean there's this sort of tension between great entrepreneurial ideas and oh it's got to be proven. I like to say that. The founders of KIPP, Mike Feinberg and Dave Levin, who were kind of scruffy teachers who had this really crazy idea about starting their own school, would probably never be approved today.
1: Right. I, I think there's, there's this tension in educational reform that it gets to a certain level, and then it begins to be sucked into this huge gravitational force of what exists. I see that, for example, in um, uh, you know Teach for America. Um, You know, initially it starts at the edges and seems very edgy and challenging, but it never takes on the real institutional form of the schools where kids are placed.
0: So, in a sense,
1: I I think it's a you know, it sounds very promising, but the bigger it got, the less disruptive it got. Right. Um, And I I think that's the same in in a way with charter schools. And part of it is, uh, effectively, the the undying criticism, the the evergreen, constant criticism of charter schools has brought a a sort of a second wave of people who who run them that don't have quite the passion that the first wave had. They don't, you know, they're not absolutely certain about it. I think, in a way, uh, for the charter school movement to, to be vibrant, it has to have people in it who see themselves as revolutionaries and here comes back to my book in terms of the entrepreneurship part of it. Mm-hmm. I make the case in, in my book, uh, in part, uh, Jeannie, to, to counter all the foolishness of going into incubators. And, you know, if you visited these things, they sort of look like real hip co-working <laughs> spaces. You know, I look at it with my uh, labor economist sign and I say, oh, these kids are just avoiding a bad labor market, right? <laughs> Nothing's going on here. And by the way, most of these incubators, never measure success either. They don't really follow their graduates, which, of course, tells you that they don't really believe something great is happening or else they'd be trumpeting at it. So let's go back to the point I was making here. I argue that real entrepreneurs are self-referencing, okay? And you'd know you had a great charter school movement that was going to be, you know, really revolutionary. If every single person running these places said, you know, I sort of know how it goes on, I know what the general uh, framework is, but in my school, we do this. And you really have kind of this mild vision that there were constant thousands of flowers blooming right. with everybody trying all kinds of things and didn't really look over their shoulder to see, I wonder if I'm too far ahead of the pack, or am I doing stuff that people would approve of? Or worse, because there's so much public funding involved, with all the regulation that comes with it, am I compliant so I get, you know, my share of tuition revenue out of uh, the local agency.
0: Well, that's right. The uh, the, the slippery slope with uh, all of the state assessments and requirements. Yep. Now, you, if you are do try to be innovative, but you're not following the exact same path of math and reading that's going to be best assessed on a national test or park or whatever they happen <laughs> to be giving – you don't look very good. I was on the board of the Washington Leadership Academy here in Washington, D.C. Uh, it actually was one of the schools that got the XQ prize, $10 million. It's all focused on virtual reality and developing new new leaders for a new civic society. It's got a very entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial bent. And the regulator from the local authorizer came to talk to us about how our kids' math scores might evolve at some point in time. And I raised my hand and I said, Well, how are you going to measure us on whether or not we're accomplishing what we set out to, which is helping students learn how to create products based on virtual reality? Her response, Carl, was, oh, do you want to have an alternative assessment? No, you're missing the point. There shouldn't be an assessment like that. You should allow us to produce the graduates and show you that exactly what we intended to accomplish is being accomplished. Um, yeah. But that's not happening nearly as much as it used to. And we just the way charter school movement kicked in pants the traditional K-12 system, we kind of need a new innovation.
1: Yeah, the traditional K-12 system was vibrant. They knew how to fight back. They'd been through public unionism, and they know what regulation is. So they know how to ch- choke down you know, um, innovation. Uh, Jeannie, if you want to watch the whole scene in, in 20 years before, you watch healthcare, mm-hmm. right? And you know there's no innovation going on in healthcare, almost none. The chokehold of federal regulation and state regulation of virtually every single thing that happens um, has brought innovation to a total end.
0: And and so, what is the what's the solution? I mean, you give some great advice uh, to successful entrepreneurs uh, in the book, and so we want to we want to make sure that people are. Are uh, sufficiently their appetite is sufficiently wet to read, particularly the rest of uh, of the story? But you say, be ready when your entrepreneurial moment comes. So are we right. are we just standing out there waiting for like the opportunity? If we get that crazy idea, I'm sure everyone listening has an idea and thinks, ah, eh, I couldn't quite pull it off.
1: Well, you know, I I have a vision that we many of us are proto entrepreneurs. So the first thing people have to understand again is what I said. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen probably in mid-career to begin with, okay? So just calm down. (laughs) Don't think that it's not going to happen because you're now turning 30 and you haven't had a great idea. So I would say indulge your sense of proto-entrepreneur. That is, if it's in the back of your head that someday you'd like to start a business, right? That you're looking around all the time. That you see stuff and say, geez, I wish I'd have done that. That wasn't all that hard, right? Um, Just keep Sort of nurturing that. It's almost like, you know, yeah, someday you'd like to play the piano, so, you know, you listen to piano records and then you take a little lesson and then eventually you might really do it, okay? So nurture that. Second thing, um, if you're in college, it's not likely you're going to start a business when you get out immediately. Don't take those courses in entrepreneurship because they're not going to serve you well. You'll be much better served if you study in the STEM area. You know, mm-hmm. science and technology, engineering and math. Get a grounding there. More engineers, people with engineering degrees, start business than people with business degrees.
0: Oh, that's fascinating.
1: Okay. Uh, third piece of advice is get a job in a big company. Now, big companies are the place that really cradle many brand new companies. People get to see stuff. They see the innovation that goes on in every major company. Most companies are tremendously innovative. So just working there and keeping your eye open, and if you're a proto-entrepreneur, just watching it, right? You get to watch innovation. But at the same time, you're picking up all the clues about the scale of the company. You know, this is what a big company looks like, how they do their accounting, how they run their supply chain, Mm -hmm. how they do advertising, how they distribute stuff. You pick all that stuff up. It's better than going to a business school. And then be alert, because this is sort of your question, you know, how does it happen? For most entrepreneurs, they don't think they're going to be entrepreneurs until an idea sneaks up on them. And what I talk about in my book is one case after another of people who are doing their job, like I was, as a professor at Johns Hopkins. I never in a million years thought I'd be an entrepreneur, right? And then one day I was doing research, and I said, oh, damn it, is what I said, because I knew what would happen. I couldn't keep being a professor once I had this insight. It had to become a business right? It wasn't what I wanted to do with my life, but I didn't have any choice. And I can't tell you, there are tens of thousands of entrepreneurs, and I know hundreds of them, who are exactly the same way. They said, you know, I never wanted to do it. And then this idea hit me in the head, and I didn't have any choice. I think when people say entrepreneurs are passionate, they don't know what they're talking about. They say, oh, follow your passion. Right. (laughs) What I think they really mean is that once you have an idea you have no choice. It becomes a passion, and you got to do it. The other thing I'd say is, you know, if you really want to be an entrepreneur and you don't have a great idea, this is one thing they never teach in college. They don't teach it in business schools. They think about people who buy franchises as low business life people, no cave you, people.
0: You like you the tell the story is, of Bob Carlucci in here. It's fantastic.
1: Yeah, he's, a, he's great, and he's just like every franchisee. People think, oh, well, they're not entrepreneurs wasn't their idea baloney they are co-entrepreneurs you own a mcdonald's you are a co-entrepreneur with a dead guy ray Kroc. Mm-hmm. okay okay he started it but he knew full well he couldn't make mcdonald's work without entrepreneurs right and it's the same thing right now with any major franchise they need entrepreneurs co-entrepreneurs to do it with them to spread the brand to make the product you get rich together.
0: Right. So don't so you don't have to have your own brand new idea. It could be somebody exactly. else's that you help co-co-brand. Exactly. Well, it's fabulous. And of course, this is the only country in the world that we really can talk like this and really see you achieve this. I mean, Tocqueville saw this how many hundreds of years ago, you know, 150 years ago, he saw that this was a unique place uh, where people naturally were inclined based on the freedom and flexibility we have uh, to think and to dare to be different. And that's, you know, great businesses and successful entrepreneurs um, do need at the end of the day, which is why I was talking to you, Carl, today for lots of reasons. But At the core, they also need a great education, and we certainly need an education system that embraces and advances entrepreneurial thinking, uh, which doesn't look hardly at all like the one we have today. I think you'd agree. (laughs) I would. Well, I want to thank Carl Sharan for spending time with us today and why entrepreneurs not only belong in the world of education but are essential if we're ever going to break out of this uh, atmosphere of mediocrity. Again, Carl is the author of Burn the Business Plan, What Great Entrepreneurs Really Do. Um, It's a best-selling book today. I hope you'll run out and pick it up. And I'm Jeannie Allen. Thanks for joining me at this edition of Reality Check. Thank you so much, Carl. Thank you. Reality Check is a twice-monthly podcast produced by National Review and posted at nationalreview.com in association with CER, the Center for Education Reform. If you like what you heard in this podcast, and I hope you did, you might want to subscribe for free to make sure you don't miss any future programs. You can also subscribe at all these really cool technological places that they have now, like iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And you can also find much more information about education, the workforce, and compelling issues surrounding our country and our kids and learners at all levels at the Center for Education Reform website, edreform.com. Come visit us. I'm Jeannie Allen.